You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Pretty light week as far as baseball news goes. <laughs> Not really much going on. Not, Not a whole lot. Much, no. What are we going to talk about? Yeah. I don't even know. It's definitely like we always uh, predict the middle of January to be, you know, just nice and quiet and not everybody, uh, you know, firing on on all cylinders, apparently. Yeah. I went to dinner last night with a friend, you know, was out of pocket for two hours, wasn't looking at my phone, very enjoyable time, uh, eating pierogies. And I came out and just it seemed like the entire world. It had happened. Multiple signings. Josh Donaldson signed with the Twins. Alex Cora was fired by the Red Sox. Uh, lots of things happened in the scope of two hours. Uh, so you can imagine what's happened in a week this week. It has been uh, quite a 48 hours or so. And we welcome you into this week's episode of the show before the show from MILB.com, the official podcast of minor league baseball. He's Sam Dykser. I am Tyler Mon. Uh, episode number 240. Uh, and you can get in touch with the show if you would like. You can give us a rating and a review and a subscription. Shoot us an email, podcast at MILB.com, uh, all of that. And uh, we're going to talk about some fun stuff on the show today. We're going to talk about, obviously, some of the big items uh, news-wise around the game of baseball this afternoon as we record on Wednesday, the 15th of January. And we are really just a month away from the start of spring training for pitchers and catchers major league baseball officially announcing the first day of workouts for teams today uh and that means opening day just around the corner and just announced more than 20 new minor league teams will join the copa de la diversión chase in 2020 the hispanic fan engagement initiative fresh off its second full season celebrates the contributions culturally of hispanic communities across over 90 minor league cities through significant on-field identities in-stadium accommodations and entertainment options and community impact copa celebrates the hispanic community whose love for the game of baseball has driven it forward visit milb.com slash fans slash copa or follow minor league baseball on social media at milb to find out more about each identity and initiative today uh, national hat day so a very fitting day for us to remind you about copa because you can go get your copa hats and uh be set to go for 2020 which uh is the season we are approaching insanity and we're going to kick things off with three strikes talking about one of the top prospects in baseball who is on the move for the 2020 season and beyond left-handed pitch you matt pitcher matthew libertor traded by the tampa bay rays to the st louis cardinals uh last thursday again we're recording this on wednesday the 15th he was traded on the 9th uh, but it's a big deal. A 2018 first rounder, uh, Libertor heads to the Rays along with catcher Edgardo Rodriguez in a competitive balance round B pick, the 66th overall selection this year. Uh, those are all headed, I think I said to the Rays. They are headed to the Cardinals, those three, from the Rays. The Rays will get back uh, outfielders Randy Arozarena, Jose Martinez, and a competitive balance round A pick, the 38th overall. Uh, Matthew Libertor jumps into the St. Louis system as the third-ranked Cardinals prospect. And Sam, your reaction to this one kind of came out of nowhere, especially a, a first-rounder from a year ago being dealt. Um, but it seems like the Rays very often get terrific returns and things like this. They obviously feel like they're very close to being able to compete for for some big things, making a playoff appearance last year. Uh, maybe Matthew Libertor was a little bit further off than what this window is uh, for the Rays, but your reaction to this deal? Yeah, I, th- I think that's a good thing to highlight there in terms of the Rays, and I think we all 
think of the Rays as a very smart organization, and obviously we've talked about that a bunch because we consistently have their farm system, if not at the top of the game, close up there. Um, so dealing away a, a top pitching prospect like Libertor makes you, you know, kind of stroke your chin a little bit. Why are they willing to give him up? And I think part of that reasoning is something Tyler just mentioned there and that, you know, they are trying to make the playoffs consistently and not just get back, back to wild card spots like they have the last two years. They want to win the division, and as we've seen, you know, 2018, the Red Sox win the World Series. Last year, the Yankees were a juggernaut to themselves. The, the Rays need to find the space in the margins to make considerable gains and not just sit on this talent. So you cash in a chip like Matthew Libertor to get back two pretty good outfielders, Randy Errors Arena and Jose Martinez. How they're going to fit is going to be interesting uh, from the Rays' side. You know, they had a good outfielder in the past, and in Tommy Pham, they traded him to San Diego. Why they go out and get two other guys and kind of move the deck chairs around a little bit when they could have just kept things status quo is, is interesting to me. But, um, you know, getting rid of Libertor for the Cardinals, uh, the Cardinals didn't really have necessarily a top pitching prospect, somebody who you could get really super excited about in that system. Libertor fits that quite nicely not only that he is kind of left-handed well, kind of left-handed he is left-handed uh takes over for zach thompson as the top southpaw prospect in that system thompson was their first round pick last year so they've got a little bit of depth from the left-hand side on the mound now uh as tyler mentioned libertor becomes their number three prospect uh i think you can make an argument that him and his good childhood friend uh nolan gorman who should be number two and number three? It's actually pretty, pretty close between those two guys. Uh, both were first-round picks in 2018, taken only three spots apart from one another. Libertor was 16th. Gorman was 19th. Uh, Gorman has some good power. Libertor, you know, MLB.com just came out with its left-handed pitching prospect rankings for 2020 he slots in at number six there he gets plus grades for his fastball curveball his changeup is above average his control is pretty good uh especially for you know a 20 year old guy who's six foot five uh he did walk 31 and 78 in the third innings but it's pretty clear he can build off that going forward everything else seems to be in place there for him uh so the cardinal system definitely gets a little bit more exciting now what is the next step is this all they were looking to do Arizona and Martinez, I know the outfield in St. Louis is a question mark this offseason. What were they going to do there? Um, they deal two outfielders away. Okay, do they go out and get back Marcelo Zuna? Uh, you know, I remember at the press conferences of the winter meetings, St. Louis manager was saying, like, I don't think Ozuna's gone yet. Until he officially signs somewhere else, I don't consider him gone. They really like him. Do they go out and do that? Is this another lane for Dylan Carlson uh, to make you know his way uh, to the major league roster even quicker than we previously imagined? That would be exciting coming off a year in which we called him as the breakout prospect of all of baseball. Uh, now he's the top Cardinals prospect. They're making a little bit extra room for him. That's exciting. Or do they go out and get Libertor? get him excited to potentially play with Nolan Gorman for a couple of weeks and then spin him off to another team. Uh, John Paul Morosi has been reporting a lot this last week that the Cardinals and Rockies uh, you know, are actively engaged in talks. Oh, really? I hadn't heard that. Yeah, no, as much as it pains me to report this. Uh, I'm not reporting it. I'm just echoing what John Paul Morosi <laughs> said. Uh, for Nolan Arenado, 
Uh, is Libertor somebody they could spin off? Because, yes, this Cardinal system is deeper now. It does have a little bit more top-tier talent that the Rockies should demand in getting rid of their franchise cornerstone, literally their, their cornerstone. Um, we'll have to see. That will wait to be revealed. Um, but for the way this deal came about, it was fascinating last week because all we knew for like a couple hours there was that Matthew Libertor had been traded. Uh, and that was it. And that's like usually we don't find about out about the top prospect being the headliner first. Usually it's which major leaguers are being dealt and then we'll find out about the prospects later. So all sorts of ideas were flying about who uh, the Cardinals could be getting rid of to pick up Libertor. We later find out it's both Arizona and Martinez. Martinez is a good fit for Tampa just because you know, trying to find outfield space for him it's going to be difficult. Uh, his bat is good. This allows him more DH opportunities. Uh, Tampa Bay has a lot of guys who kind of fit the, that first base DH type role. I think of Nate Lowe, and I don't know what they're going to do with him, uh, You know how he kind of fits in here. If we know anything about the Rays, though, it's that they like depth. They like multiple options. They'll figure it out to get to 162 games. Uh, adding Martinez to that mix will be really interesting. Ares Arena, it's still technically a prospect. Um, so we can talk about him in, the, in that sense. He becomes the number 12 prospect uh, in that Tampa Bay system. I think they picked him up so he could be a major leaguer. Uh, I'm not too worried about that. Uh, but he hit 358 last year for Memphis. Uh, he's a above-average runner. He had 17 stolen bases. Um, showed a little bit more, more with the bat. He had an OPS above 1,000. Uh, he's got a good arm in the outfield. He can play multiple positions. We'll see how he plugs in there. Uh, I think he got a little bit overrated because people got – a little too excited by the the AAA slash line in a year in which we all know uh, AAA offense was up, and also, you know, he was 24 all of last season, which isn't old for AAA by any means, but is a little bit old for a prospect to get excited about. Um, so we'll we'll see how he pl- kind of plugs in there. He's a good depth option for them to have as well as they try to fill that hole uh, left by Tommy Pham. But uh, in terms of a, a trade that you know, I think kind of made sense for both sides, even if neither side ne- really needed to make it. It, it was a fun uh, January trade last week. Pretty crazy stuff. Kind of came out of nowhere. And uh, time to, well, I, I don't know if we should really say right now, time to be excited about Matthew Libertor as a Cardinals fan, because who knows what the next step is in that deal. But, uh, yeah, all very interesting stuff laid out by Samuel there. Um, That brings us to strike two. You may have heard this week uh, there was some news that came down about the Houston Astros, who have been uh, docked their first and second round draft selections in the next two years in addition to a $5 million fine, uh, the firing of manager A.J. Hinch and general manager Jeff Lunau. Um, All of this stuff is of course a huge deal as it uh, affects the Astros going forward for our purposes we're going to discuss this uh, draft pick loss specifically because that most heavily impacts the minor league side of things you look up and down the Astros postseason roster from last year Carlos Correa number one overall pick in 2012 Alex Bregman was number two a year later Kyle Tucker was the fifth overall pick in his draft George Springer was a first overall pick uh, back in 2011 the Astros have hit so well on their first and second round picks i mean they've really hit across the board in their draft selections for the last several years uh but 
this is uh, a relatively big blow to the Astros organization in terms of what it brings in from the amateur side. Um, I think there are probably a lot of people around baseball who feel like it's not a big enough blow given the the infractions here. But um, Sam, your thoughts on on the loss of these first two selections for the Astros for 2020 and 2021? Yeah, so let's let's lay out exactly what it means this year it, and. Uh, you know, first round picks sound scary for the Astros. It's not going to be as scary, I think, as basically any other team in the league. Uh, they were slated to select at number 30 in the first round, literally the last pick of the, fir- the first round this year. Um, they lose that pick. Their first pick now is number 72. Not only does that hurt them in terms of, you know, those are two picks you don't get to take players at, and it's Difficult to find high ceiling players at number 72, but it also takes away from their bonus pool. Um, They don't get credit for number 30 and their second round pick. Uh, That gets wiped away as well. So they're dealing with a smaller pool that they're going to have to sign their first 10 picks from. Um, So that's not going to be great as well. And then we don't know what their pick would be in 2021 yet. We won't know that until after the 2020 season. But given the current state of the major league roster, we can pretty well assume that it's probably going to be in the final 10 picks. Um, So, you know, looking at the Astro system right now, yes, as Tyler was saying, uh, historically the last couple of years, although that was under – the previous GM regime that you, that is now no longer there um, and other members of the front office have gone on to take other jobs in Baltimore and other places. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what this new front office, A, what shape that's going to take, but B, how they would approach a draft. Um, but they've drafted well in the past, but we've gotten kind of to the point now where a lot of those guys have graduated. A lot of them have been traded. Uh, Daz Cameron, somebody who never made the majors of the Astros, they traded him and Jake Rogers and Franklin Perez. Franklin Perez, not a draft pick, but you know, still member of the farm system. They turned him in, th- those three into Justin Verlander. Uh, so even if they weren't cashing chips at the major league level, they were turning prospects into legit major league talent. Uh, now you look at the farm system. They've got Forrest Whitley as their number one overall prospect. And then he's their only uh, top 100 guy right now. And I, I feel fairly strongly that none of the other guys on their list are going to crack the top 100 when it's updated in 2020. So, you know, Forrest Whitley, if all goes well, will probably graduate this year. Obviously, we saw last year that that's not a guarantee by any means. And if it's not, then his stock is going to slip even further. And when you don't have a first round pick coming in, even if it's at number 30, uh, it's difficult to build up that. So what we didn't see is that the Astros didn't get punished for international pu- money. Um, you know, the, the Braves have been punished for that in the past. Other teams have been punished for that for overspending on the international market. Do the Astros, I know the cap system is different now. They probably need to be more active players on that side of things. If they're not going to find you know, a gem in the first or second rounds for the next two years, they need to find those high ceiling players internationally where they are allowed to do so. Uh, Because once Whitley's gone, this, this system becomes, you know, one of the worst in baseball. I think there, there are some, certainly some interesting pieces here. I really like what Abraham Toro did last year. Uh, Corey Lee is an interesting guy that they brought in. Brian Abreu already has major league time. There, there are some pieces here. Christian Javier had a great season last year. Um, but 
you know, we're not talking about multiple top 100 guys here, and it, that well is going to dry up pretty quickly. Um, so even if it felt like a slap on the wrist from the draft side, know that this is going to have effects longer than just 2020, 2021. We're going to be talking about the ramifications of this potentially in 2023 and 2024 when we're looking at the Astro system and wondering why aren't there many top tier prospects here. It's because they weren't able to draft them two years prior. And, uh, yeah, there's it just feels like there is so much more to come from all of this story. Obviously, the the Red Sox are still sort of waiting with bated breath for what happens there. Alex Cora has been uh, dismissed. Yes, we'll hear mutually part ways. Apparently, that's a new way of saying it for everything. Uh, but presumably, that was uh, much more mutual on one end than it was on the other, if you will. Uh, but, yeah, there's uh, a lot, it seems like, still to come uh, from this story and We'll, of course, keep you updated on how it affects uh, the minor league side of things as we go forward. Uh, prospect projections continue. Strike three this week. National League East is up. Uh, the reigning World Series champions among that division. Sam, who stands out to you among the prospect projections on the NL East side for 2020? Yeah, I'll, I'll try not to be as winded as I think I was last week when I was looking back at that and trying to cover the whole AL East. But the one thing that I think is is most intriguing to me about the NL East is you know the Washington Nationals, World Series champions. Their Twitter account says that every hour on the hour almost they, they want you to remember that they are world series champions and hey they get to do that until another one is crowned that's great for them um, but what's next you know the the thing about the nats that was great about this year is that everything came together at the right time uh, but also it was right before they potentially could lose guys to free agency steven strasburg uh was eligible to opt out of a deal they eventually bring him back anthony rendon was actually a free agent at the end of the year now he signed with the los angeles angels so they have this big opening at third base with arguably their best player uh, and I include Scherzer and Strasburg in that conversation and Juan Soto in that conversation. Anthony Rendon was so consistent for the Nats the last couple of years and consistently great, especially towards the end uh, after he was a pretty good rookie. He, The way he has aged has been incredibly good. Uh, that's a massive hole that they have now at third base. It also just so happens that their top prospect is an infielder in Carter Keboom. Uh, Keboom is mostly a shortstop. He played a decent amount of second base last year, but he also got 10 games of experience at third base. If you remember Keyboom last year, we talked about it a little bit. He was called up for a short spell when Trey Turner was injured, had a ridiculously tough time in the majors, short sample, all that. Offensively, defensively, seemed to struggle. They ended up not bringing him back at any point, even when rosters expanded. He was working out in Florida, staying fresh in case they needed him, but they wanted him to get regular bats if he was going to be up. That was not happening when they were trying to chase down a playoff spot themselves. Uh, so all if all you do is follow the majors, and if you're listening to the show, that's obviously not the case, but if all you do is, is see Keyboom during his brief time at D.C., you would think he his ceiling is kind of lowered the last 12 months. Couldn't be further from the truth. He was a PCL end-of-season all-star last year, made the Futures game. Everything we felt about Keyboom at the start of the year, we, we still feel that way. He has the opportunity to be above average both with power and his hit tool. Uh, he's got a pretty strong arm for the infield. So that makes me think that he could be the perfect filler at third base. Uh, not just filler, but future of third base uh, for the Washington Nationals. Now, when I did this projections piece, you know, at the same time, the Nats have made some interesting moves this offseason. They brought back Howie Kendrick. They brought back Estrubal Cabrera. They signed Starling Castro. Uh, 
to a free agent deal as well. Castro's probably going to play second base. Kendrick played a little bit of third last year. Cabrera played a little bit of third when he was with the Rangers. Um, so they have multiple options now. How does Kiboom line up against those guys? Fairly well. Not great, but fairly well. Uh, when we're looking at WRC+, plus, which means you know, average is 100 Anything above that is above average. Anything below that is below average. Kendrick is the only one above average amongst those third base options at 117. He's more likely to be maybe a first base platoon with another guy they signed in Eric Eric Thames. Is it Eric Thames or Thames? I always get it wrong. Thames. Right. Thames. The river is Thames. The river is Thames. Eric is Thames. Thames. Apologies to Eric Thames. Uh, Cabrera is a little bit below average at 98. Castro is at 95. Again, we expect him to play second base. And then Kiboom is at 93. So really debate comes between Asdrubal Cabrera and Carter Kiboom. Now, it's possible that Cabrera gets a couple gets the position on opening day uh, because, you know, he's a more veteran player. He's in his 30s. He's been there before. He was on the postseason roster last year. But the bet almost becomes between a 34-year-old who is obviously declining or a 22-year-old who is obviously growing and, and you know needs experience because he's proven everything he can at AAA. I'm always going to take the bet, even if the projections say Kibum will be a slightly worse player. It's much easier to see him improving on those impre- projections than it is for his Drupal Cabrera. Uh, you know, so this spring is going to be a big one for him. The Nats, in discussing his position this offseason, have said, you know, we think he's a pretty strong defensive shortstop. That's great. Unless they start working Trey Turner out elsewhere, I don't see them moving him off short. Uh, so that means Kibum's going to have to play a little bit more. Hopefully he gets as many many chances to prove himself at third base as he can get. The arm will play there. I think his footwork is fine there. Uh, it's just going to be a big spring for him. So it, if the Nats are just looking at, oh, what do we have and um, if they're not making any other moves, you know, like we said, Josh Donaldson signed elsewhere – Doubt they're going to trade for a Chris Bryant or a Nolan Arenado. Uh, Kibum is a pretty good bet to at least see third base time at some point, and I think the projections are good enough that he should be very firmly in that conversation for opening day and not just say, oh, go back to Fresno and we'll call you in a couple weeks. Uh, with a strong spring, I think he could push back as Drupal Cabrera, make Cabrera more of a utility infielder alongside Kendrick and Thames and all that and uh, see how it works out. So keep an eye on that situation coming up in spring when it comes to third base uh, with the defending World Series champs. And that is three strikes on this week's episode of the show before the show. We're going to have a run through some of the best content on MILB.com today on this week's episode of the show before the show. Josh Jackson's coming up in a little bit to talk about a crazy long-form story that he's got up on the site. And uh, Kelsey Yannigan joins us right now. It is uh, Wednesday, January 15th. This podcast will come out on Thursday, or as known to most people, National Hat Day Plus One. Uh, today is National Hat Day when we were recording this, and Kelsey's got a story up on the site about uh, 10 of the most popular caps in minor league baseball in 2019. These are not necessarily the 10 most popular but 10 of the best-selling caps uh, in 2019, they are awesome and colorful and super cool. And, uh, Kelsey, run us through uh, some of the highlights from this story. Yeah, so uh, like you said, it's National Hat Day, so we looked at 10 of the most exciting and most popular hats from last season. Um, and it's a lot of new, bright colors. That's definitely the trend now. Uh, 
they were going from, you know, retro hats and throwbacks to now it's like all about the bright colors and the craziness um, and nothing showcases that like Copa. And there's two Copa ones with uh, Columbus as a Valeros and Hickory as a Lamas uh, to celebrate the culture of Peru because they don't get enough love in the baseball community, according to Brandios. Um, so that's a fun one. And then let's see, the Utter Tuggers of Wisconsin. That was another huge one, one of the top selling on our website. And I don't know, I guess people just really like cows. Uh, I talked to Jason Klein, who's one of the co-founders of Brandios, the guy who designed, the company that designs a lot of these hats. And he said that they've been long wanting to do a hat to celebrate uh, cows and the dairy land of Wisconsin. So they decided to go with this one. Um, and it was interesting because he said that, you know, obviously Brandios is known for doing all these crazy rebrands of teams changing their name and their logos. And they decided to take that same formula that's working so well for a whole team rebrand and taking it to just a promo night or something that a team might only wear once or twice a year, but it's still going to be a big deal for the fans. The uh, Wisconsin Utter Tuckers, if you're ever wondering, can I get a piece of merchandise with a cow's udders prominently displayed on it? Now you can't. You can get a lot of them. Uh, you can get the the hat, uh, which is one of the top ten best-selling hats. Um, obviously, the, the Copa uh, collection has blown up in recent years in what the, the sales have been like for that. And we've seen, you know, not just uh, merchandise sales, but ticket sales on Copa de la Diversión nights have been uh, a big jump from the average minor league game. So it's kind of cool to see those represented uh in this as well it feels like this is just kind of the start of that wave i mean these are 10 of the most popular you got uh, a list of even more than that how heavy of the influence was copa on all these um it's definitely there um i think that they're growing more and more popularity the latest round of copa logos and hats came out in i believe november um, so I'm sure those will keep growing as the season goes on. Uh, and it's been cool to see all the new teams jump in to Copa uh, in its second iteration. And now it's going to be its third iteration in 2020. Yeah. One thing I, I want to point out, you highlighted it before, but just to reiterate it, uh, the llamas being successful. One of the big reasons for that is, you know, it, it's Peruvian. And we don't think Peru and Hickory, North Carolina match up necessarily. But if we're talking about hats, internationally nationwide when I, th I think is it Jesus Suzardo Tyler can you back me up on this Jesus Suzardo yes, has born Peruvian, in Peru yeah and competed for the world at, at the Futures game wearing a Peruvian flag like there there is some connection to baseball there that we haven't seen celebrated in this way and to see those unique aspects brought out in these hats is a great way to sell them and you know bring other people into the game and, and make people crawdads fans who probably weren't crawdads fans before yeah and that's definitely the cool part about like all these hats not just the copa ones is that you bring in new fans that wouldn't necessarily like think of rooting for a team in a small town that they're not a part of um but one of the ones that does the best of this i think is the lehigh valley has a john cap which is philly slang for a thing like can you hand me that john like I want a piece of that John, like for a sandwich or something. Uh, yeah, I was yeah. Say, yeah, yeah, sorry. I, I, mean, I was thinking cake, to be honest. Uh, but so I just think it looks so cool because it does just look like the Phillies font. It has the Navy star. And if you didn't know any better, you just assume that the Phillies made it. But it was actually Lehigh Valley adopting uh, the Philly fan base and 
who's their parent club, of course, and they're, you know, Lehigh Valley isn't too far from Philadelphia. So I think it's pretty cool that these minor league teams can not only adopt like um, a Latin culture or things like that, but then they also can connect to their parent club, which a lot of teams are fans of the affiliate because it's their favorite team. And one thing I, I also wanted to touch on real quick um, that I don't think we've talked about yet is two teams here did not play technically in 2020. Uh, the Rocket City Trash Pandas are on this list. They won't even exist until this season, but they announced their identity last year uh, before the season started, so they, they got to get a little bit momentum uh, before they start in 2020. But also on here are the Norwich Sea Unicorns, somebody we've talked about with Ben um, again, you know, the Connecticut Tigers existed last year. There is a fan base there, but so many people bought hats for this identity, which was released in the fall to appear on the end of year list. Um, kind of talk about that and w what you realized about what made Norwich and Rocket City so popular at, at this stage. Yeah, Rocket City was actually on our list last year, too. So that's two years in a row that they're one of the most popular hats and they have yet to play a ball game, which is crazy. But I think that it's just wild. And I think that's the kind of hats that sell. You know, it's, it is a raccoon in a trash can-shaped rocket. Uh, like, what? I don't know. It's just it's weird, but it's cool. And so you want to do that. And, um, and then the Norwich one, yeah, they didn't announce – announce their logo until December 5th. So that's, you know, three weeks that people went crazy for this Norwich hat. Um, and while some people dispute the idea of sea unicorns versus a Norwal, uh, I, people love it. And I personally, like, that's one of my favorite hats right now and logos is the sea unicorns just because the colors just go so well together. And, you know, he, he's snarling, but he has this rose tattoo to represent the city of Norwich being the uh, the Rose City or the Rose of New England, if you will. Um, but yeah, both Rocket City and Norwich have these names that are not necessarily the common animal name. Not It's not a Norwal, it's not a raccoon, it's a trash panda and a sea unicorn. But I guess that's what draws people out. The uh, Rocky Mountain fighting Guy Fieri's uh, on that list as well. One of the things that uh, I find most interesting about this list of the 10, the Wilmington Blue Rocks, the list includes either alternate identities or cope identities or new teams, um, that type of stuff. Wilmington has had this same look and this same logo since 2010. Uh, Rocky Blue Winkle is the name of the moose who is on the front of that hat. He is actually wearing a hat with a logo that the Blue Rocks also wear on different hats. <laughs> um, but this is such an outlier in this that Wilmington's had this identity that has aged so so well and continues to sell really well yeah they had the logo or just the idea of the moose and the br for like they think they've been the blue rock since like 93 but yeah 2010 was when they decided to change colors and they kind of just looked around and realized that that carolina light blue was not really that common in sports so they thought how can we stand out and also thinking about like the local little league team you know they tend to wear major league or minor league hats and jerseys so they thought like how do we make the local little league team stand out too um so they went with the carolina blue and it's definitely stood out another one that's in a similar boat is eugene and that's actually their road cap which seems even more or less common just you know you wouldn't necessarily i, I never think to buy a road cap versus a home cap um 
And Eugene has also had that logo for a while, but it wasn't until 2016 or 2017 that they decided to add the white trim. And that was when it became really popular. Uh, the original thought process was to not have the trim and to kind of have the Sasquatch kind of blend in with the background. So you're like, is he there? Is he not there? Just like Bigfoot. Um, but then after a while, while that's a cool idea, they realized that it might look better if there's the white trim and it can pop. And it clearly has, as the results are there. And I think one thing, at least with the Blue Rocks, just to go back to what you were saying with that kind of Carolina blue, and we'll talk with Ben about this um, either earlier in the show, you may have already heard it, or we'll talk about it with him later. But Winston-Salem kind of pops because they're purple. There aren't many purple teams. There aren't many light blue teams either. And I, I kind of wish in this whole discussion of rebrands and, and logos and everything that goes forward – you know, we talk about trying to stand out in terms of names. Try to stand out in terms of looks, too. And this, we see the success here based on that. It's not just, um, you know, is your raccoon in a rocket that's being fired off from the garbage. Uh, it's if you can find just a color palette that is, doesn't exist somewhere else and really pops on the field, that's going to be successful as well. Yeah, that's like a, I think it was Fresno last year when they – change their uniforms and their color schemes and everything because they're becoming a nationals affiliate they decided to wear red pants and that was at the time the only team to wear red pants regularly so right. it's definitely there's definitely a lot of ways you could stand out besides just the name so it's and i think copa does a good job of that in terms of colors too maybe we'll have to do national pants day is, is that a thing <laughs> i don't know <laughs> <laughs> there's a national day for everything now there's yeah, gotta that's be that's true national I, national I, yeah so. at the very least national denim day <laughs> Kelsey's story is up on the site right now at MILB.com. Uh, one of the, the best features of this story, all of the hats, all the graphics are linked to the uh, the pages where you can buy said hat. So if you are uh, really jonesing for a John hat, um, you know, in case you want to wear your Philly slang around, you can uh, you can get it from right there. So um, check out the uh, the story on the site. And uh, Kelsey, again, again, everybody. Kelsey, thanks. Thank you. Have a good day. that I could just use uh, the things that Josh Jackson and I were just talking about uh, before we started recording as we uh, shift gears to uh, discuss some long-form Big J journalism with our big pal, Big J, Josh Jackson. This is the worst introduction in the history of this podcast. Hi, Josh. Hi. It's definitely the worst one I've ever gotten. I've only been <laughs> on a few times, so... Uh, you're now I'll big, take it. Let's you're now big Josh. Josh joins the show for us to discuss uh, at length uh, season six of the BBC uh, sitcom Peep Show. Um, no, but I am in season six now, thanks to Josh, and it brings me uh, much joy in my life. No, uh, we are going to dive into a two-part story that rolled out to the site last week. Of course, we came back last week with our uh, first episode since the uh, turn of the calendar, and uh, we wanted to let people get back into work and do all that stuff before we dove into Josh's story. If you missed this story, it came out on, uh, on January 3rd was part one, January 6th was part two. If you missed these stories, uh, this upcoming interview is going to make you go back and read them if you would like to read them beforehand uh we encourage you to do it now there are two parts of this story about the 1919 vernon tigers of the pacific coast league and josh and i are going to dive into this if you would like to read it beforehand probably a good idea you can hit the old pause button here on the show and then come back and join us uh, as josh discusses it in a little bit more detail but if not guaranteed this uh interview will make you want to read it and uh with that josh go 
No, I'm kidding. Well, before um, no. <laughs> no, go well, ahead. Let me say before people put don't hit pause yet. If you if you if you're about to hit pause, uh, hold on one I second. I told him to hit pause. Um, I'm sorry. Just, don't you know, yet. just as a tip, um, an easy way to find the story without without googling. If you you know don't like to type things into search engines, you can go to www.milb.com slash history. Yeah, and you'll you'll find this the story there i just wanted to take the opportunity to point people to that page because it's a, it's a great page that a lot of um great stories are on and, and, and a lot of hard work has gone into by uh uh big cast of characters at milb.com so um you can find the tiger story there it's uh, milb.com slash history do it that is a it's a good rabbit hole to fall into milb.com slash history and uh with that let's kick off this conversation um the 1919 vernon tigers of the pacific coast league uh this as the the i guess shortest summation of uh this story would say that it's very much a a corollary and a contemporary story to the black Sox scandal of the 1919 World Series. Um, there's a lot of yeah, similarities. There's a lot. And you actually kind of say that in the intro to this story. It's like a mirror um, image. Yeah, also. which is fascinating because I had never heard of this before. But the Vernon Tigers of the 1919 Pacific Coast League, really, really interesting story, crazy characters, all that kind of stuff. Fatty Arbuckle is involved in this story. Like, this is a fascinating – this is the type of thing that, like, oh, yeah, Josh wrote this, and now a, a few years from now it's a book. Like, just give us the give us the basics of this, and then we'll dive into it. Yeah, so the basics are that, yes, uh, Roscoe Arbuckle, I understand, by the way, he didn't like to be called Fatty. Well, I um, imagine. You know, Fatty was like a, his character, the, the way that Charlie Chaplin, you know, his character was the tramp. So right. People didn't go like, hey, hey, the tramp. There's the tramp. Charlie Chaplin. Yeah. But, but, but Roscoe Arbuckle would be walking down the street and people would go, hey, Fatty. <laughs> um, I'm sure so that was just very heartwarming for him. Yeah, I, I've read, you know, I don't know. How much, I, I've read some accounts where, of him saying to people, like, I have a name, you know. <laughs> um, but anyway, he, he did indeed buy this team, the Vernon Tigers, um, which was an early PCL uh, franchise in the, the city of Vernon, which is now a really industrial little it's, – it's its own city, but it's, um, I think it's like 12 miles um, – sort of southeast of Los Angeles. It's very much part of the Los Angeles metropolitan area, and it's hugely industrial now. Um, at the time, it was sort of a something of like a, a boxing mecca. There was a character called Jack Doyle, who, who was a, a boxing promoter, had an arena there. He owned a bar that was 100 feet long and had 37 bartenders at 37 registers. Um and part of the draw for starting the Tigers there was that it was a one of two uh, cities in L.A. County where booze where that was not dry, where you could buy booze. So, um, and this is pre-prohibition, by the way. A.K.A. Roscoe Arbuckle, right? It's pre-prohibition, but still, you know, um, headed toward prohibition. Um, so there was a, a, a brew. Uh, family of brewers called the Meyer family who, who bought into the Pacific coast league and started this franchise. Um, I think in 1909, I should really have that information in front of me or no. Yeah, it is. It is 1909. They, they started and, uh, for the 19, you know, for the 1919 season, 
um, the film industry was on the rise and, and Roscoe Arbuckle was becoming a big star. Uh, and he loved baseball. He had played baseball as a youth, bought the team. Little did he, ha- he had no way of knowing, of course, that um, in, a, in a sort of scandal that wouldn't come out until the next year in a grand jury investigation, that that year's team ended up buying the Pacific Coast League title, specifically one player, really, um, Babe Borton. He, he paid off players on other teams to, to lie down. Um, and this all came out the next year when Arbuckle, by the way, had, had sort of had enough of baseball. There's kind of a, there's a lot of evidence to support the idea that he was really excited about his, his purchase of the team in the beginning. Um, he, this is in the story. You can read about a, a really fun sort of skit that he and, and uh, Buster Keaton did before Vernon Tigers game and, and what a hoot that would have been to, to be at. But, um, but by the end of the season, it, he, it seems like he was pretty much just like, what is this baseball nonsense? I, I don't want anything to do with this. I'm, uh, I've got a film career going. Um, but, yeah, so I, I don't think he had his suspicions or anything, but he, he sort of avoided a scandal. Of course, he'd run into his own scandal a little later. That's a podcast for another time. <laughs> um, <laughs> there's, I have some things that I, that I haven't, that I did not put in the story that I'll share uh, Please. for podcast listeners so that you guys can get a little bit extra. And then maybe this will entice you too to go and look up a story. So um, one of the things is that the player who came forward for the, in the 1920 season and said, there's something rotten going on with that Tigers team. Babe Borton tried to bribe me was a pitcher named, um, Ralph, uh, Ralph Stroud, he was, or Sailor Stroud, he, it was his nickname. Um, oh, so he gets to go by Sailor, but Roscoe Arbuckle doesn't enjoy Fatty? Okay. That's, that's right. That's right. <laughs> so Sailor Stroud was a pitcher for the Salt Lake team, and Borton tried to bribe him to, 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 you know, to lose the game. Stroud ended up losing that game, but not on – it was like 2-1 to one or, or 1 to nothing. He pitched a heck of a game. But so this is what's not in the story. After after the game, Fortin comes up to him and, and tries to pay him the three hundred dollars that he, that he said he'd give him if he lose if he lost. And Stroud said, you know, that he he he, he said no. I I pitched I my heart out. I didn't want to lose that game. I was this wasn't for you, you so and so. And then Fortin. Stuck the money in the guy in this guy's pocket. He took huh. the money out of his pocket and forced Borton to, to take it back into his hands. Uh, <laughs> I just um, like that level of like it becomes like a physical altercation almost. Yeah. Uh, it, <laughs> in that story. Um, and then, sort of. Uh, uh, here's a quote from the deputy district attorney of Los Angeles. Um, I think Frank Stafford. Uh, Frank might not be his. Hold on. I'm oh, sorry about this. Uh, Fatty Stafford. <laughs> Fatty Stafford. Um, <laughs> it is Frank Stafford. Okay. Have a little more confidence, Jackson, huh? Um, <laughs> so Frank Stafford, this, this 
quote, I think, sort of points to um, the attitude that we're all sort of familiar with um, from Kennesaw Mountain Landis in the, in the Big League case. Uh, um, he says, we're going right after gambling at Washington Park. The investigation has been conducted with good results, and the net is tightening around those who may be found guilty. So, you know, there's this attitude that that gambling was this sort of pervasive thing, like snaking its way through baseball, and that there are these law and order men who are, who are going to come and, and clean up this dirty little mess. Um, I think that sort of speaks to the time. Does that make sense to you, yeah. Tyler? Yeah, definitely. Well, and what I think is so fascinating about this story is how contemporary it can be viewed now with coming legalization of sports gambling across the country and all that type of stuff like it's a, a story that i think a lot of people look at and think oh it was 100 years ago and it's the ragtime era and the black Sox scandal and and that's so crazy but there's a lot of stuff that you look at and go all right i guess i i can see some parallels yeah i don't i don't think that the culture is quite the same that, right that, you know I, I don't think there's a huge risk of of sort of us living through another Black Sox right, era in minor right. league or major league baseball, um, but you can I think you can sort of understand that this was a real thing that really happened in that framework, and and understand how that might have happened. Um, you know, Borton he had this cover story that it wasn't he he didn't when he I mean you if you read the story you'll you'll learn all of this, but. He didn't. Uh, he never. He never said like, "Oh, I did it because of this gambler that I'm involved with, who's been, you know, honing up all this cash and, and reaping huge rewards." Um, he, his first story was that the Tigers had a pool of money that they'd pooled their money, some of which was like reward money raised by LA fans. That was this money was to go to the Angels or the Tigers, whoever won the PCL, um, and that from this pool of money, the team collectively. Was, was buying one just because they really wanted to win, which, which is like a really kind of a weird story. Yeah. Um, a weird cover story. Almost so weird that for a minute you're like, well, <laughs> that's interesting. And, and like he's ratting, you know, he's naming the names of, of teammates here. Um, you've got to say like, well, there, there might be some truth to that. And we, we really, I mean, to this day, we can't say that we, that nobody else was involved from, from the Vernon Tigers, but yeah. um, we can say that the evidence certainly supports this uh, this narrative that Babe Borton, working for a gambler, created this this giant mess. Well, and what's so interesting about this story? I mean, among many things that are interesting about this story, there is this uh, kind of phenom team that that turns into uh, a, a touchstone for this era for Vernon but also captures so much of the time of what's going on in in Los Angeles and in Hollywood at that time and and Arbuckle's there and there's you know this great promotional fanfare they described that there is basically like a daily riot in the right field stands among the right, fans right, who go to right, the games right. there like, right but really raucous atmosphere right and, right and it's true too that this was a very good team like they, they yeah. won the title in 1920 
2020 also. One with, of my favorite know, things about that, too, is the, the PCL back in the day played like a billion games. Like, Josh, Josh's like, right. oh, and with that win, they improved to like 120 and 77 on the year. It's like, how long was this season? Yeah, but, well, and they played a lot of doubleheaders. But, yeah, a but, lot of doubleheaders. Yeah, they yeah. also, you know, the the playoffs, the championship series was all long. Uh, you know, Major League Baseball for a long time played a best of nine for the World Series, if right. I remember correctly. Right. Um, and that's so, right. but there's all this stuff, and that's all in part one. And then in part two, I mean, it's such a classically American fallen hero tale in that you see the dismantling of this, and you see the way that players kind of turn on each other, and Borton becomes this villain uh, where he was such a hero in that championship championship season with how well he had played um but it's just the it is it's a classic rise and fall kind of story and it's fascinating in that way and there are so many parallels to that black Sox scandal but it's just such a different uh a different world and also well two points one to be clear the pacific coast league was basically a third major league at that point so we talk about the pacific coast league in 2020 um as obviously a triple a AAA league and and one of the two at the highest level of the minor leagues the pcl back then when major league baseball was all basically an east coast or an eastern time zone uh entity the pcl was pretty much a major league at that stage so this kind of has the same uh maybe not the same ultimate um, fallout as the Black Sox scandal, but the stakes were very similar. It's true. And if you, I mean, people now talk about an East Coast media bias. Um, yeah. <laughs> and if you think that's true now, then go back 100 years ago, um, just to the extent that, you know, today we, we very much are aware of uh, the 1919 World Series. It's, it's a part of the public life in the Great Gatsby. Um, it's it's kind of beyond baseball, um, but you know, given that the PCL did indeed actually become a minor league in every sense, uh, uh, it, it can be hard to remember that. Yeah, at the time, there were guys who had the had a choice between you know, do I go east and play for uh, you know Boston or New York or uh, Pittsburgh or Chicago, or do I stay on the West coast and travel basically up and down California and, and to Seattle and Oregon, um, and Salt Lake in there too. Um, the money was, was not for some people, the, the contracts were comparable. Um, if you were a huge star in the big leagues, obviously you could, you could do a little better, but, um, yeah. It was a, and for fans, it was a big deal because there was, I mean, we're talking now of there was no real radio broadcast of, right. of a regular season game in those days. It, um, so if you wanted an account of a baseball game, you looked at the box score in a, in a newspaper, or you talked to someone you knew who went down to Washington park last night and saw the angels and the tigers play. And then you went out there yourself, you know, for three games over the weekend. And the- that was pro baseball to you. Yeah. Um, the other thing, there's, by the way, if you are anyone like me or Josh or anyone who kind of shares the same. Well, that covers both of us. <laughs> who shares the same uh, weird sense of humor and also like strange fascination with like that era and doing like old timey voices and uh, reading off hilarious slang. Just like the quotes from the newspapers at that time are more than enough to get you to read the story. Like uh, doff the sky piece, which means tip the right. hat. Uh, right. They refer to fans as bugs. Um, 
my favorite thing, my absolute favorite thing uh, in this entire piece is uh, a a reference to uh, Babe Borton had an injury in uh, in late August of that year in which the Los Angeles Herald's Matt Gallagher said that the injury was fixed by uh, a, a time when, quote, his vertebrae has been shoved back into place, which is the most, like, 1919 medical <laughs> understanding that I could ever possibly have contra- Oh, I just shoved his vertebrae back into place and got that old first sacker back on the field, see? Yeah, there were, there were, uh, there were other newspaper <laughs> clippings from, you know, various papers that kind of talked about, like, Oh, the spineless first sacker. <laughs> he didn't lose his spine. Um, they removed Yeah, one spine, more quote you know? that I kind of pulled aside that is in the story, but I just, I really liked, you know, there, there's uh, an outfielder who had, who had been accused of, um, of being on the receiving end of these, of these bribes, of, of being paid off by Borton. Um <laughs> The, a newspaper found him during, doing his off-season job just after he had uh, <laughs> yes, been in, yes. just after he'd been indicted, and he was he was working for a coal company. He was a delivery man for yes. for a coal company, and so a newspaper man tracked him down and said, "Uh, oh, Margaret, you you've been indicted in Los Angeles for criminal <laughs> conspiracy to fix baseball games. What do you say?" And he said, "I have to deliver five more loads today, and I start on a duck hunting trip <laughs> tonight." <laughs> He's going duck hunting. He doesn't want to be bothered with your grand jury indictment. He literally uh, leads that quote by saying, quote, I saw in the papers today that I had been indicted, whatever that right. means. Right. <laughs> whatever right, that right. means, it's a pretty substantial legal procedure, man. I'm del- Look, man, I'm delivering my call. I'm doing my duck hunting. five more loads Whatever you want to do with the prison and the hunting. blackballing me from baseball, that's fine. <laughs> I'm living moment to moment, and at this moment, I'm delivering call and going duck hunting. What is incredible, and I'm going to caution anybody who has not read it yet, if you are going to read this story, I'm going to spoil the ending for you. So right now, pause, go read the story. Also, you had 100 years to to learn about this. You had 100 years to read this. (laughs) This this happened all the way back in 19 dickety. Um, (laughs) The end of this story is fascinating in that Basically, they get to a point where uh, the L.A. Superior Court judge, Frank Willis, dismisses the indictments and says that throwing baseball games is not a criminal act and there's really nothing to be done legally. Yeah, yeah. And that, I can you imagine, so that was, I believe that was on Christmas Eve. Yes. Now, this this story that, you know, or these rumors sort of broke in August. So if you're if this is your favorite you know baseball team you're following this scandal uh, if any of these teams any Pacific Coast if you're a Pacific Coast League baseball fan and basically if you're a baseball fan west of St Louis uh, <laughs> you you're following the story from August until and then and there's this long grand jury uh, investigation and then indictments and warrants for arrests are issued and then. Like three days after that, I think, maybe two days after that, a, a, a judge just says, well, there's nothing we can do about this. This yeah. is, this is does, a bunch of How hooey. does it get to the point where they convene a grand jury, hand out indictments and warrants for arrest, and then someone steps in and goes, oh, by the way, none of this is illegal? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> well, I think I think part of it is also that that sort of attitude of, 
you know, clean up baseball. Where, where the law um, being so pervasive that nobody yeah. sort there, there was no sort of spirit of, um, wait a minute, is this actually a legal matter? Yeah. That <laughs> the president of the there PCL was at time was really it. keen. Right, right. He was really keen to get a grand jury involved. Um, William Wrigley, the, who, you know, he owned the, um, the Chicago National League team at the time. Um, they, you know, the Los Angeles Times, this is not in the story either, but the, the LA Times found him on Catalina Island, and they, they're, they're asking him about the scandal in the PCL. Um, and he says, the crooks and gamblers in baseball must go. Baseball is the greatest game of American sports, and it must not be made less attractive to the public by the dishonest players and its ranks. There is but one way to punish the gambling ball player. Uh, my computer just did a weird thing. Um, <laughs> so I'll tell you what that one way is right now. And that is to rid the game of him. It is not the, it is the only safe rule to follow if the game is to be made clean. And, um, yeah, I think this spirit of, like, this is becoming our national game. Um, it's, the, its popularity is sort of rising through the roof. And it's uh it's it's every american patriotic duty by gum to <laughs> to see that uh these crooks are thrown in jail or worse uh, <laughs> yeah i think i think that spirit sort of does explain that um that nobody sort of cooled down and said wait this is not a criminal matter until a judge had it before him and sort of looked at the facts of the case and said okay what law here am i to punish these men for breaking yeah yeah. Um, and, you know, as the as the saying goes from back then, if you're a baseball fan who wants to clean up the sport, you shove your vertebrae back into place and you, uh, right. you get out there and do it. You make it happen. You baseball bugs. <laughs> get rid of the your spineless for a sack. This right. is really just an excuse to get Josh on here so we could do old timey voices for 20 minutes. <laughs> You'll want to check out our other podcast about peep show and old timey voices. <laughs> Uh, but you really should go read these two stories. There are two pieces, uh, two parts. Um, the uh, first one is uh, titled in 1919, uh, in PCL of 1919, Tigers Were Wild and Dangerous. Uh, the second one, part two, uh, in the in which the story starts to unravel for the Vernon Tigers. The headline on that one, Truth About Tigers, emerges in pennant race. You'll see those both at MILB.com uh, slash history, but you really should go read them. They are fantastic stories. Josh Jackson is on Twitter at Josh Jackson MILB. As I said, uh, when this story came out, Josh is out there playing chess while the rest of us are playing checkers. It's fantastic work. He works harder than any human being I've ever met. Uh, his writing is better than any human being I've ever worked with. Uh, he will not say any of that, and I'm making him tremendously uncomfortable by saying any of it myself. Uh, but he is the greatest, and uh, as soon as we hang up, I'm going to text him a whole bunch of things about Peep Show. If you all have not watched Peep Show, it's on Hulu, and you really should. That was great, Tyler. I'll, I'll send that check right right along and have that uh, have that bug take the gun off you. Um, thank you for Get having me. Get my vertebrae me. shoved and, back into place. Thanks for coming and, on, buddy. And thank you, listeners, for listening. And that too. Thanks, Josh. Bye, bye. Time to welcome in Benjamin Hill for this week's episode of the show before the show. Hello, Ben. Hello, Tyler, and hello, Sam Dykstra. Sitting to my left as we uh, face out looking uh, 
at Manhattan along Avenue of the Americas. Yes. It's quite a uh, iconic view we got here. I can see a gap. <laughs> a store that's called the Gap. There's yeah. also gaps between the buildings. That's right. I can see multiple gaps. And uh, I can see an American flag that is mostly obscured by a fox flag. Yeah. Okay. But no American eagle. Yeah. We cannot see an American eagle. <laughs> okay. Um, well, at least if you rip a seam in a pant leg or something, you know that you've uh, you got options close by to the new offices. It's very important stuff. Yes, we do. We're very close to the Diamond District, too. We can see uh, elements of the Diamond District. We can do our Uncut Gems cosplay every <laughs> night on our way home. Yeah, well, I've been doing that already. And some yeah, wouldn't even call it saying. cosplay. Some would just call it you know, me running up and down the street just yelling, who wants a bet? Yeah. <laughs> That's a good idea. Um, well, let's uh, get rolling on this week's conversation with Ben. Uh, kind of a sneaky new primary logo has been unveiled by the Winston-Salem Dash. Uh, the Dash have come out with a new interlocking WS. Um, this was a, a very difficult birthed identity back uh, 10, 12 years ago when it was unveiled. Winston-Salem was the Warthogs. They were supposed to move into a new ballpark as the Dash in 2009. There was a nightmare situation trying to get that ballpark open in which construction stopped and then the city uh, the newspaper called for a boycott and they were playing on campus at Wake Forest and like literally two dozen people would show up to the games and the whole thing was a nightmare. Then they opened the ballpark in 2010. It's an absolute gem. It's gorgeous. Uh, But the Winston-Salem Dash identity which has always been kind of a, a strange outlier uh, in the MILB world in its conceptual uh, identity. Uh, this is a, the first refreshed look to that logo and that name since it was unveiled about a decade ago. And it kind of came on with very little fanfare. This wasn't really announced. It wasn't a big thing. They haven't rebranded. It's just a new look. Yeah, we have a new logo. You know, we've been talking a lot about uh, rebrandings. Uh, you know, uh, obviously for the last couple of months, uh, the off season, a big portion of it is uh, you know rebranding season. Um, you know, not too many teams that just kept their name and uh, you know redid the logos. We had a little bit of that with the Danville Braves, who I don't think we talked about, who did you know change their primary logo around, but still so much in the sort of MLB parent club Braves. Uh, logo fashion that I guess we it, it didn't seem very you know noteworthy in terms of like a real aesthetic uh, shift for the for the Danville Braves. The other team uh, that has changed its primary logo is more pronounced. Uh, Tyler, like you said, it's the uh, Winston Salem Dash, who did so uh, well today, uh, yesterday. If you're listening to the podcast today, today being the day that the podcast came out Thursday. Anyway, they did it yesterday, uh, Wednesday. (laughs) (laughs) It all makes sense. On Wednesday, the Winston-Salem Dash unveiled a new primary logo. Yeah, a little under the radar, not one that they really uh, hyped up too much. Um, You know, Tyler, you spoke quite a bit. You were, I guess, a Carolina League guy at the time that uh, the Winston-Salem Dash identity came into being. Um, Yeah, it was a difficult... They did not ever appreciate when I called them the Winston-Salem Dash. That was the original concept behind the name was there's a dash in between Winston and Salem, and a dash is like a baseball term, like stealing a base and whatever, but that's not a dash, it's a hyphen. So they did not like when I called them the hyphen. Or the Winston Hyphen. So you're bringing it back just to. I'm trying to reopen old wounds. Okay. That's what All we're right. saying. Always good. <laughs> it's always good. It's the only way to. It's the only way to move on. Um, so yes, they are keeping the dash name, which, as Tyler, uh, you know, mentioned, is a a grammatical reference among other things. Um, 
But they, whereas the dash, the, the previous logo, you know, the so-called angry baseball, uh, the team name, you know, dash was written in this, you know, kind of speeding bullet train fashion with an angry baseball attached to it. Uh, the previous, uh, the previous logo did have a, it did try to convey a dash, you know, forward movement, velocity, those baseball sort of italics, yeah, basically what it was in. Yeah, baseball italics, exactly. Good, you know, good way to put it. Um, so there's still the dash, but now we have a classic kind of retro, old school looking uh, logo, um, a interlocking WS, um, or maybe not even so much interlocking as much as a S uh, placed atop a W. You know, with the uh, lower you know, one-sixth of the W obscured by the S. Um, you know, these things are always a little hard to explain. But I think, you know, if, if you think an interlocking WS or an S overlaid atop a W, uh, you know, it's a pretty uh, – it's a throwback sort of look. Uh, black and white primary colors and, of course, keeping purple, which was L, which is, uh, you know, prominent in the old identity. Uh, they unveiled all three hats today. Um, home and Road uh, are look almost exactly the same, black – with a white Winston-Salem logo on it. The road cap has a purple brim. Uh, so still some prominent purple in uh, Winston-Salem land, which is a uh, you know still a fairly anomalous color in the sports branding landscape. But there you have it. The Winston-Salem Dash have a new logo. Oh, and it was done by a local ad agency called The Variable. Hmm. And so in your discussions with them, why now? I mean, uh, you know, Tyler opened the, the segment by saying, this is the first time they've done it since they've moved to the new ballpark and the first time they've gotten a new logo since they left the Warthog's identity behind. But what about now? Is it the new decade? Is it just the old one was feeling stale? Why why make this switch? I think they had felt it was stale for probably a little while. Um, yeah, the first year that they had the Dash name was you know 2009. They moved into the new stadium in 2010. Um, you know, so it's kind of swirling around roughly you know 10 year anniversaries. Uh, nothing. You know, I think they're going into their technically what 12th year as the Dash. So nothing that they can really put a major stamp on it and say you know, I've, you know this is exactly why. But I think. Uh, They've been feeling that they just needed a refresh and heading into a new decade, you know, no time like the present uh, to just get it done. So they've gotten it done and heading into 2020, new decade uh, with the new logo. This might not be something they brought up, but this is more a question for the two of you, Tyler, because you're also a logo fiend. Um, but is there anything to the fact that they move closer to a WS? And I know that's the the place name, but they're also a White Sox affiliate. Is that are they trying to lean into that at all, or is that me looking too much into it? It does have like a White Sox feel to it. That WS. It does, and you know, I wish I had thought to ask that question um, earlier when I was writing the story or when I was uh, talking to the team, because uh, that seems pretty obvious. And I even thought of it fleetingly, and then forgot. I mean, it, it, what, it, it probably isn't because you know these, this is a Carolina League team. It's North Carolina. Outside of Michael Jordan and UNC, like there's not really much of a Chicago, North Carolina connection there. Um, I, it was just something I noticed, so I don't. I don't... No, it's a good question, and uh, I think it bears uh, some investigation. So we'll check in with the team on that. Yeah. Hey, Winston Salem, is the emphasis on the W? But in talking to to CJ uh, CJ Johnson, the team president, you know, I think I don't want to speak for him. I think the WS for White Sox as well is kind of a nice feature, but I think really what they wanted to do is you know dash 
doesn't really have a local connection unless you really want to get specific about the hyphen and call it a dash and all that. Uh, so I think they really just yeah, wanted who would do that. that? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they just wanted an identity that uh, spoke to Winston-Salem, I think, first and foremost. So making the WS very prominent uh, in the new branding, I think, is a way they decided to do that as opposed to dash being the most prominent element. They're now minimizing the dash element of the name. Uh, begs the question, maybe down the line, why not rebrand if you're going to not really have a unique name and not really have anything around it. But, you know, one thing at a time. They're the Winston-Salem dash, but they're emphasizing the Winston-Salem portion of the name this time around. I mean, this does feel like a way to kind of have your cake and eat it, too, in that so many of the reactions we've seen to rebrandings is, why would you do this? I like the old version. But you can still sell new things out of this and still get that excitement. Is this a middle-of-the-road feature, you feel like? Yeah, and I, I think that, yeah, they didn't want to go in the, the cartoonish. They, I, think, I don't think they wanted to stir stir things up. They still have a not a Newton ballpark, but a ballpark you know, that draws well. It's still one of the best in the Carolina League. I don't think they felt the need to, uh, you know, do something crazy irreverent to get attention at this point in the game. And uh, But why not shake things up? And, hey, if you like the old logo... You can you can still it's wear your old now. stuff. It's yeah. retro now, and this new logo is kind of retro just in its overall aesthetic. So, uh, you know, take your pick. The lettering is is very actually kind of Red Sox feeling in, in the style. It reminds me a lot of uh, what Worcester unveiled the the Woo Sox new lettering, not the W that has the heart in it, but just the standard jersey lettering. Um, but the way that logo is laid out with the W and S going kind of diagonally down, left to right, that's very Sox feeling. That Chicago White Sox script. So um, yeah, kind of interesting stuff for uh, the Winston Salem dash, and uh, you can get some of that stuff already on their uh, shop page, which it is Wednesday and this has not been unveiled but they've got some of that merchandise up so a little fun easter egg for those of you who are now listening on thursday they also have a t-shirt of something called the cheesy pig dog which i'm assuming is a concession stand item uh that features a pig laying in what looks like a bathtub and pouring like melty cheese on his own belly and i am 100 buying that t-shirt um so with that we'll move on uh there is a batting around column which is uh, coming to the site and has uh, a little bit of a focus on what's going on in Mobile. The Bay Bears obviously moving out. They are the Rocket City Trash Pandas now. Um, and Mobile, that uh, that stadium, uh, long-used minor league facility. What's going on there? Yeah, you know, batting around, it's my kind of recurring monthly more or less uh, you know, ballpark news column. And, you know, a lot of times, such as the last uh, – column I did. I, I focused on uh, you know new ballparks and where they are in their construction. But then when you're thinking about new ballparks, then the, the other question is, well, what ballparks did they replace? And then when you think about those old ballpark, old ball, ballparks, you're saying, uh, well, what's happening to them now? And so you know the Rocket City Trash Pandas are the former Mobile Bay Bears. Uh, Mobile no longer has a minor league team. They played in Hank Aaron Stadium. And uh, some pretty interesting stuff going on there. They, um, they had a lease um, but they had two years remaining. And so, um, you know, it's a city owned facility. There are two years remaining on the lease that, um, rocket cities management, you know, had, uh, that they obviously no longer need because, uh, they're in rocket city now and no longer the mobile Bay bears. So they solicited, uh, different, um, you know, proposals for what to do uh, with Hank Aaron Stadium and a, a company is coming in and uh, doing, you know, more youth uh, tournaments, uh, local tournaments, um, national tournaments. They're going to have the uh, 
Babe Ruth World Series at uh, Hank Aaron Stadium next year. So keeping it alive in that way, doing concerts, having holiday light shows, uh, that sort of thing. So I'm going to talk about kind of that progress uh, or that process uh, of, you know, once a team moves out, how do you keep a facility viable? What they're doing in Mobile, uh, you know, is one case. And then up- updating on some other situations, some new ballpark construction, odds and sods, uh, loose ends, ephemera, you know, anything I can find related to uh, that topic, ballpark uh, construction, renovation, and uh, reuse. I like that Babe Ruth idea. Imagine playing on a Babe Ruth team and getting to play in Hank Aaron Stadium. Like that, as a kid, I mean, cool. I, the facilities there weren't great and whatever, and there's a reason why they're moving out. But as a kid, that must be awesome. I mean, that's a great way to keep that place alive, I think. Yeah, you're still playing at a stadium called Hank Aaron, you know, named for Hank Where Aaron. Where double A ball was played. double yeah. A ball was played. Um, you know, I think it's a, yeah, may, while it may have been in the lower tier of Southern League double A ballparks, it's still in the very much upper tier of just places to play baseball mm-hmm. overall. Uh, it's easy to overlook that sometimes. And, uh, you know, it's called Hank Aaron Stadium. Uh, my very first road trip ever was going, you know, as a full-time employee of uh, – writing for MILB, was going to Hank Aaron Stadium for the opening of the Hank Aaron Childhood Home and Museum, in which uh, the team played a big role in relocating Hank Aaron's childhood home in Mobile to the grounds of the stadium, you know, furnished it with, like, period-appropriate furniture and artifacts from Hank Aaron's career. And um, so apparently the Hall of Fame has taken a lot of the things that were in that museum uh, one and childhood home and museum once the Bay Bears left town. Uh, but they, the Ch- Hank Aaron's childhood home is still on the premises, and so it'll be interesting to see, uh, you know, what the city, what the new um, operators of the ballpark, you know, are able to do with that very unique element of, of the ballpark. Benjamin Hill is on Twitter at Ben's Biz, on Instagram at the Ben's Biz, and you can find all of his stuff, of course, at MILB.com, uh, including the batting around story and uh, the Winston-Salem new look and all of that and more. And, uh, Ben, we'll talk to you next week. Thanks, man. Hey, thank you guys. And uh, last week, you know, we talked about uh, office GIFs and how I said minor league teams should not use them anymore Right. Uh, in replying to tweets. I uh, expressed that sentiment uh, yesterday. And just go to my Twitter, at Ben's Biz, if you want to see minor league teams responding to my uh, suggestion that office GIFs should no longer be used. It is a very uh, robust reply, <laughs> yeah. thread, to say the least. So check that out if you're into that kind of thing. A lot of people said it brought them a smile, uh, a little bit of joy, and that's all I'm trying to uh, provide, even though I cannot speak. Goodbye, guys. We're here. Thanks, Ben. Bye. This has been a fun one today, a wall-to-wall MILB.com uh, journey through the site and what is up on the site, what is coming to the site. All that kind of stuff. Um, this is a fun one, Sam. Yeah, I mean, we we joked about it at the start of the show about how this has been a busy week for baseball, and obviously it has. Uh, but it's just a reminder of any given week. We're, we're always going to have stuff up on the site that's new and different and something you might not have thought about. Uh, I, I love Josh's story. I, I really like that we have Kelsey's story up, and then we could bring them on this week. And then, you know, Ben, you know, talking to him, he, he always says, like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. And then a, a team rebrands itself in the middle of January. So, uh, you know, if spread the word on this is what i'm saying is that if you think spread the word yeah if you think the podcast is going away in the middle of january it's not if you think minor league news is going away in the middle of january it's not this wheel keeps on turning 
And uh, you can get in touch with the show again, podcast at MILB.com. Uh, Sam's on Twitter at Sam Dykstra MILB. I am at Tyler Ron. We're talking about logos and hats and all that kind of stuff. And just a reminder, over 90 teams will vie for the Copa de la Diversión in 2020, each with an identity as unique and impactful as its area's Hispanic community. Follow Minor League Baseball on social at MILB and visit the Copa website at MILB.com slash fans slash Copa to find out more about the initiative's newest members and colorful, vibrant identities. Uh, go check out Sam's stuff and Ben's stuff and Josh's stuff and Kelsey's stuff uh, on the site at MILB.com. I've got a story that kind of ties in with uh, with Kelsey's story. Um, some alternate marks that are coming out for teams in 2020. That'll be coming up to the site, I believe, next week. We're going to roll that one out. And uh, we'll have some more fun as we get closer to the end of January and pitchers and catchers reporting in just about a month. Uh, so that'll do it for Sam Baxter. I'm Tyler Mon. Thanks, everybody, for joining us this week. We'll talk to you next week. Hey, Rob Bradford here. You guys know I'm always up for a good MVP story. And one of the best stories is Wasabi Technology. Wasabi is the world's hottest cloud storage company, and it's become the go-to provider for professional and collegiate sports teams, including 20 major league baseball teams like the Red Sox and NHL teams like the Bruins and Vancouver Canucks. Even the Liverpool Football Club is getting in on the Wasabi action. So why is Wasabi the MVP? Well, Wasabi was purpose-built to free businesses from skyrocketing storage costs and unpredictable transaction fees that the Amazons of the world are charging. In fact, Wasabi is up to 80% less than those hyperscalers and doesn't charge a cent for businesses to access their data from Wasabi's AI-enabled intelligent media storage, Wasabi Air, to the industry's only cloud storage service with triple protection against cyber criminals, data deletion, and ransomware. Wasabi's taking the lead in driving innovation in data storage and helping sports teams to unleash the power of their data. Wasabi, another Boston-based championship team.